All right, we're moving on now to the reading and proclamation of God's word. And we are going through the book of Exodus, where God brings Israel out of Egypt and establishes them as a nation at Mount Sinai. And we've just worked through the chapters where God is giving Moses explicit instructions for the design of his tabernacle, his portable temple. Then in a few chapters, Israel will build it exactly according to design. But in between, we have one of the most important episodes in Israel's history, the whole Bible, really. It is asking and answering the question, how can God bind himself to a rebellious and stiff-necked people like Israel, like us? And we see the outline of that answer here in these opening verses. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And now, therefore, let me alone, that, I may, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful uh, that you are a gracious and merciful God and that you show us that here, and that you invite us to draw near to you and to ask you for forgiveness and mercy. Help us to do that now. And I pray that through the foolishness of what is preached here, you might draw us all closer to Jesus and make us more like him, that others might know him as well. We pray this in his name. Amen. Early in our marriage, Aaron and I lived in a studio apartment in downtown Palo Alto, and it was great. And uh, one time she had been eyeing a particular lamp from Target, talking about getting it, and she really wanted me to go pick it up, but of course I procrastinate on these kinds of things. But one day, I, I had waited long enough, so one day I decided to get it, and I thought it would be a nice little surprise for her. So I bought it, and I set it up in our little studio. She came home, and I said something to her like, notice anything different? 
you know, as if I'd gotten her something. And she's looking around, and she's like, what, what? And she doesn't see it. And I start laughing, and she still doesn't see it. It's right in front of her face. So she starts to get frustrated at my laughter. And, uh, and she's like, you're making me look like a jerk, but you're the jerk. And I burst out with laughter, and I finally point out the lamp. So that's become a quote between us and our marriage. When one of us does something nice for the other one, you're making me look like a jerk, but you're the jerk. And this is kind of how Israel was feeling in this moment. They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They'd gone through the wilderness. They'd met God at Mount Sinai. He'd given them his law and covenant. They had agreed to that. And then Moses goes up the mountain to receive the plan for the tabernacle. That was six weeks ago. And they hadn't heard from God or Moses since. Israel was getting impatient, and they wondered if they'd been had. Maybe this was some kind of sick joke. Maybe God had just killed Moses. But who knew if they were ever coming back? They needed to get going. So they made this idol of gold, this golden calf, and they prepared to leave Sinai. All while God is preparing Moses to make this beautiful dwelling place for him in the midst of Israel. God was doing something wonderful for Israel. Israel assumed they'd been abandoned. And we do this in our relationships sometimes, right? You're making me look like a jerk, but you're the jerk. We can do it with God. When we don't perceive him acting, we sometimes assume he must be neglecting or hurting us. So we turn from him. We go our own way. We make our own gods. What is God supposed to do about that? What should he do with Israel? How can God be faithful to faithless people? Can God, will God be faithful to us when we prove ourselves unfaithful? That's the question these next three chapters are asking and answering. Here, Israel acts as a mirror for us. What we see in Israel, we see in ourselves. Faithless rebellion. And what we see in response from God is faithful restraint. Faithless rebellion, faithful restraint. And so these three chapters, 32 through 34, they're like a book within a book, meant to reveal this fundamental nature of God. So we're going to be doing some, some deep theology learning how to relate to God and how he relates to us. But today, we're just talking about these two points, faithless rebellion, faithful restraint. So first, faithless rebellion. We should see ourselves in this passage. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Right? They're saying, look, Moses is delayed. He brought us out of Egypt. Right? In, in these three chapters, there's going to be some debate as to who actually brought Israel out of Egypt. They're saying, this guy Moses, he brought us out of Egypt. But then these, these elders, probably the representatives of the people, say, well, Moses did that. But now we need gods who will bring us into the promised land. Forget the past. We have to look forward to what we need now. We need gods to go with us now. And so Aaron makes this golden calf, melting precious metals, uh, carving it. And the people say in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron plays along. And he declares a feast day to Yahweh. That's the name that God revealed to Moses. It's Lord in all caps in your Bible. 
as if Yahweh is now represented by the golden calf. So there's all kinds of confusion and syncretism going on here. The next day, the feast and worship day, we're told in verse 5 that the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And that last phrase, rose up to play, can have some sexual connotations. The people started messing around. I think of it as a rambunctious fraternity party. Verses 7 and 8, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Right? God's already distancing himself from Israel, right? He says Moses brought them up out of the land of Egypt, not himself. Because this is no small thing. This isn't a technical error or honest mistake. This is a betrayal of the covenant. We'll see in a few weeks that when Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. And he says Israel has sinned a great sin, which is a phrase in the Old Testament for adultery. They have trashed their relationship with God. The last time the nation of Israel spoke was in chapter 24, when after hearing all the words of the covenant, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then the blood of the covenant was thrown onto them. The next time the people speak in Exodus is to demand new gods from Aaron and to rewrite history. They immediately break the covenant. This is like a guy who says, I do, to his new wife on his wedding day. They're just married. And instead of taking her on a honeymoon, he leaves her and heads to Vegas for a two-week bender filled with women and gambling. Sounds crazy, right? None of us would ever do anything like that. But like Israel, we have such short memories. I have sped to the hospital, assuming my daughters were dying in utero. I have faced financial ruin. I have been crushed with a broken heart. God never left my side. He was palpably present in all of those moments. I have betrayed myself, my family, my God, and God has never failed to be gracious and forgiving. I have heard God speak to me. I have found God in his word and people and sacrament. I have seen God work through me. I sense him all the time. And still I sin, hour after hour, day after day. I am a stiff-necked person, and so are you. That's who Israel was. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. We must not place our confidence in our own spiritual fitness and maturity. This past week, I was in uh, St. Louis for our denomination's annual gathering business meeting. One evening, I went into a cigar bar for like an hour. I didn't smoke a cigar. There was a lot of secondhand smoke, though. And I know what that's going to do. That's going to make my first run, maybe my, even my second run this week, miserable. Right? I'm going to be paying for that secondhand smoke. I've run consistently for two years, and I can still be set back by one hour of secondhand smoke in a cigar bar or taking uh, simply a week off from running. We begin to lose our physical fitness quickly within 48 hours. And years ago, uh, we were meeting with a fairly high-end physical trainer who was also a Christian, and he was talking about this aspect of our biology, how quickly we can get out of shape. And he was angry. He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why? Why did you make us this way? 
so that we can so quickly lose our gains, right? So much of the fitness that we build over years, we can so quickly lose. He really wanted an answer. He was angry. But we see the answer right here. Our bodies simply mirror our hearts. We physically get out of shape really fast because our hearts get out of shape really fast. God wants us to learn that. No resting on our laurels. Because what do we do when God takes too long or God disappoints us or God is simply inconvenient? We make new gods, just like Israel did here. We pick other authorities to listen to and follow. We pick other things to tell us that we will be okay. Sure, this God, Yahweh, he helped us in the past, but where is he now? What has he done for us lately? God is not bringing me a Christian spouse. I'll marry someone outside the faith, not connected to Jesus. I'm not in the income bracket I expected to be by now. No more giving. Sunday worship isn't as enthralling as I'd like it to be. I'm just going to stay home. I don't like what the Bible says about race or politics or sexuality. I'm going to ignore those parts. We simply want to do what we want to do, whenever we want to do it, the way we want to do it. We are stiff-necked. Have you ever stopped waiting on God and just gone ahead with what you wanted to do? God was preparing something incredibly beautiful for Israel, a mobile dwelling place for himself that went with Israel wherever they went, a little portable garden of Eden where God could be found. He would dwell in their midst and bring them blessing. And they were willing to forego that because they got impatient. If you think God is withholding something that he ought to be giving you, if you find him absent and you feel like you're just in a dark fog, I would ask you to consider that maybe God is preparing the ground and preparing you to have a greater, deeper, richer experience of him and his presence. That's what Israel was willing to pass up. God was giving himself to them, and they got impatient and moved on. Don't move on. Even if God seems absent and silent, he is preparing something good for you. So one takeaway here, if you are investigating Christianity, perhaps it intimidates you, perhaps you think you could never live up to the standards and the lifestyle of Christians you know. Maybe you think that you don't have what it takes. Well, trust me, you're no worse. You're no worse. I know there are people here who consistently talk down to themselves about what bad Christians they are and how they don't compare to others here. Look at this episode. You are no worse. And the people who dismiss other fellow Christians... Or maybe they dismiss Christianity for whatever reason, because it's not extreme enough, or it's too extreme. There's too much grace, or they get their politics wrong. Trust me, you're no better. You're no better. Do not fail to learn the lesson of the golden calf. We are all in the same predicament. We are stiff-necked and we turn on God. 
So Israel's predicament is ours, and it's not pretty because this is what God says to Moses in verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. All of us have turned our backs on God over and over again. He would not be unjust to destroy us. So the question is set. How can God be faithful to a faithless people? How can anyone enter into covenant with God and live since they will assuredly break the covenant? In the face of faithless rebellion, God shows faithful restraint. My second point, faithful restraint from God. Why? And then how? The ultimate answer of why we'll see in chapter 34, where God shows Moses his glory and declares his name, and all his goodness passes by him. There God says, The Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This becomes Israel's creed, simply who God is at his core. God takes sin seriously, but his mercy triumphs over judgment. And this lesson is learned in these three chapters, and it's sprinkled throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's quoted that God is this, what he says about himself. God is angered by sin, but he is also moved by his own grace and mercy. So this story is meant to teach us how and why we should trust that God isn't going to destroy us for our faithlessness when we seek forgiveness. That God is merciful. Why does he show faithful restraint? Because he is gracious at his core. Now, how is he gracious to us? How do we receive it? Well, we receive God's mercy rather than judgment and wrath through the right mediator. Through the right mediator. Again, look at how God says it in verse 10 to Moses. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's like, you're the one I like, Moses. I like you. So don't try to talk me out of this. I'm going to start over with you. This is actually an invitation to Moses to step forward and intercede for Israel. God did something very similar with Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses will show himself to be a true mediator. Instead of letting God make a great nation out of him, he pleads for the nation of Israel. For the next three chapters, he'll be pleading for them. But he lays out most of his arguments here. He makes three points very quickly. He says to God, finish what you started. Verse 11, Moses reminds him that God was the one who brought Israel up out of Egypt. Not fake gods, not Moses himself. God had already begun this great work of salvation. Then he continues by reminding God about his mission to the nations. Verse 12, Moses argues that the Egyptians will see if God destroys Israel and will conclude that God is evil. But the point of the Exodus was to show Egypt and the nations that God was good, the true God, that his glory might fill the earth. Finally, in verse 13, Moses tells God he must fulfill his already made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about rescuing Israel and bringing them into the promised land. So, three great succinct points. And Moses isn't trying to make excuses for Israel. He's not even appealing to God's pity. He's appealing to God's glory and self-respect. 
One, God will finish what he starts. Two, God will be made known to the nations. Three, God will keep his word. And this is persuasive. In verse 14, God relents from bringing destruction upon Israel. Now, we might get an unflattering impression of God from this story, right? Does he storm into rages and a human being has to talk him down, right? Isn't God all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal? Does, does he really change his mind and need to be reminded of his commitments and promises? No, that, that's not the picture we get of God throughout Scripture. So why is he here depicted like this? Why does he want this story told this way, of Moses going up and down the mountain negotiating with God? I believe events happen this way to teach Israel and us that we need a mediator. We must take God's anger at our sin and rebellion seriously. And we can't do anything about that on our own. We are without hope unless a mediator pleads our case and engages God's promises and blessings on our behalf. Through Moses, God remembered that Israel was the people he had saved. Through Moses, God remembered that the nations would know God through Israel's own salvation. Through Moses, God remembered that Israel were the children of Abraham that he had promised to bless. Through Moses. Now, in the coming chapters, Moses will show himself to be an imperfect mediator. Some questions will go unanswered. God is teaching them and us to look for a better mediator through whom all of God's blessings and promises come. And that mediator is Jesus. There's plenty to say about this. It's the whole New Testament. But here for this passage, see how this works. Because you are in Jesus, God will finish what he started in you. As Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because you are in Jesus, God will make himself known through you and accomplish his mission through you. As Peter writes, you are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because you are in Jesus, God will keep his word to you. Paul again writes, the one who called you is faithful and he will do it. If you look to Jesus in faith, how much faith? Just a speck. If you look to Jesus in faith, then God relents from judging you for your faithless rebellion. By faith, you are in the mediator Jesus, and in Jesus, God's grace and mercy are activated and accessed. The point of this is in our failures and rebellions, the next step isn't to run and hide in shame or double down on your sin because you're already going to be destroyed anyway or grovel or promise to try so much harder or make some deals and negotiate, whatever. The point is to draw near to Jesus. That's where safety lies. He's the mediator. What do you do in the face of your sin and rebellion? You run to Jesus. For some of you, that might be for the first time. For others of you, it will literally be the 10,000th time. And running to Jesus simply means remembering and believing that because of him, God will finish what he started in me. He will use me for his mission, and he will keep his word to me, I find in Scripture and his sacraments. 
Moses points out that God finds himself in a predicament of his own making. God has entangled himself in a web of commitments and promises that he cannot cut without doing dishonor to himself. To put it very simply, God is stuck with these people. And if you're trusting in Jesus, God is stuck with you. Now, maybe that doesn't sound all that comforting. Let's say you've been married 20 years and you ask your spouse, you know, hey, why are we still together, you know? And you're hoping for some kind of great answer like, well, you know, we make each other better or I love you more now than I ever have in the past. And instead they say, well, I'm stuck with you. That might sting. But this isn't the whole picture with God. He's not just stuck with us. He sticks with us. See, because God is dishonored in a different way if his people remain faithless rebels, right? God still looks like a fool then. So what's the solution? His solution is to personally enter humanity as an Israelite and achieve a righteousness his people never could and to take the just punishment they deserve for their rebellion. That's Jesus. This then enables God, through his son Jesus, to pour out his spirit on his people and make them more and more faithful to know the law, to know God, and to love him with all of their hearts. By his suffering and love, God will make them faithful. He sticks with us. Thirty years ago, a man named Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina. He and his wife Muriel, they were getting older, but she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And like many in his position before and since, he gave up everything else in his life and career to care for her. In his resignation speech, he explained how he came to the decision. Muriel Muriel cannot speak in sentences now, only in phrases and words, and often words that make little sense. No, when she means yes, for example. But she can say one sentence, and she says it often, I love you. The board arranged for a companion to stay in our home so I could go daily to the office. He walked there. As soon as I left, she would take out after me. With me, she was content. Without me, she was distressed and sometimes terror-stricken. The walk to school is a mile-round trip. She would make that trip as many as ten times a day, sometimes at night. When I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When the time came, the decision was firm, he says. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. But this is the important part, what he says. This was no grim duty to which I was stoically resigned, however. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. She is such a delight to me. I love her dearly, and it's a great honor to care for her. This is a beautiful example of human love, sacrificially giving away yourself to ease someone you love, to ease their passage into death. And God's love is like that, but better. Because he takes us as dead and faithless rebels, and he loves us into life, into our full humanity, And he doesn't say, I have to. He says, I get to. 
This is what God is doing. He is sticking with us until we are holy and righteous and blameless because he loves us in Jesus. So even in our sin and rebellion, these are occasions for us to know God and his love for us better and better as we run to the mediator, Jesus. That's what these chapters are teaching us. Recognize your faithless rebellion. Run to Jesus where God faithfully relents. Let's pray. God, we're grateful again uh, for your word, and we are grateful that you teach us that in Jesus, in your Son, we have full forgiveness and safety and restoration. Help us to run to him now. Help us to trust that we are united to him by faith, as you tell us this in your word and in your sacrament. And enable us more and more to be your people who declare your excellencies, who declare to this watching world that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is better than anything else. And knowing you and walking with you and having you present in our lives, that's abundant life. That's thriving. Help us to know this and live this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.